Okay, Malachi chapter 2, beginning from verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Thanks, Dan. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning, and it's great to be able to carry on our journey in uh, the book of Malachi together. Now, I wonder, as you heard uh, that passage read by Dan, whether you noticed the theme of these verses. I wonder if you heard the note that is struck again and again in these verses in Malachi. It's this idea of faithfulness, isn't it? Or its opposite, um, breaking faith. Do you notice that as we read through uh, these verses? Verse 10, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. Um, Verse 14, they have broken faith with their marriage partners. And then verse 15 and verse 16, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Five times in the space of a few verses, we have the same idea of breaking faith. They have been unfaithful. Now, I want to begin uh, by asking you how much you think faithfulness is valued in our society? How much is faithfulness valued in our society? If we were to think of it as a currency, has its value appreciated or depreciated over time? Now, I'll be interested to talk with you later if you're um, from a non-Western culture, but in the West, one area where faithfulness seems to be valued very highly is when it comes to individual expression. Just think about the catchphrase, be true to yourself. At its heart, I think, is the idea of faithfulness, isn't it? But it's self-focused faithfulness. We must be faithful to who we are, no matter what the consequences. But what about when it comes to other person faithfulness? What about when it comes to our words and to our promises? Is that valued in our society? 
Well, my wife Natalie had to swear an oath on the Bible recently. Um, She wasn't in an American courtroom drama. Uh, She was in a solicitor's office in Lancaster, uh, renewing her veterinary vows. Um, And the person officiating said to her, no one does this kind of thing anymore. The idea of making binding vows or lifelong promises is becoming less and less common. Now, one obvious place to see this is in our understanding of marriage and relationships, isn't it? Which is a topic we'll be considering from God's word today. Many thousands of couples are opting not to get married, and their reasoning will sometimes be uh, something like this. Well, what difference does it make anyway? Why is getting a slip of paper important? Why do we need to make public promises to one another? We, We love each other. That's all that matters. And for those who do decide to make lifelong promises to one another in marriage, many of those promises are broken. In 2021, just to take one year, there were over 113,000 divorces in England and Wales. And it's now an accepted part of life. But just compare this to God's faithfulness. Christian believers all over the world have come to rest their confidence on the unchanging faithfulness of God. We base our entire lives and our eternal futures on the fact that God is faithful to his word. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, we read these words, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God is faithful to his promises. He does not change. He does not go back on his word. And therefore, he's faithful to his people. All those words we've already heard from uh, chapter 1, verse 2 in Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. He's the faithful, covenant-keeping God who loves us with a never-stopping, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. And Christians are people who take God at his word. We rely wholeheartedly on the fact that God is faithful. If he were not then we would have no confidence, we'd have no assurance, we'd have no life at all. We live and breathe within the sphere of God's faithfulness. And where Malachi is going to challenge us this morning is to ask us, if you believe in a God who is faithful, then do your lives reflect his faithfulness? If you believe in a God who is faithful, then do your lives reflect his faithfulness. In other words, our faithful God wants a faithful people. Now I want to say as we begin these verses that there'll be some hard and challenging parts for all of us to hear in different ways. Many of us have had close encounters with divorce, perhaps in our families, perhaps we've gone through that personally. Some of us have difficult marriages at the moment. And so if this does raise hard things for you, please do talk to somebody that you trust. Come and find me if that would be appropriate. But I also want to remind us as we begin that our God is a God who loves us, as we saw last week. And his word is a good word. It is good for us. It is good for our society. It is good for our world. However hard it is to hear. So we're going to think about God's call to faithfulness in two big areas this morning. The first is the call he makes to all his people in verses 10 to 12. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Now Malachi uh, begins by reminding the people that they are God's covenant people. Have a look at verse 10. 
Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now, I don't think this verse is talking about the universal fatherhood of God or even talking about God being the universal creator of every person. I think this is about God's covenant love for Israel. They are the we and the us in this verse. In Hosea chapter 11, for example, uh, which is on the screen, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God called his son Israel out of Egypt, and he created them as a new people for himself. He gave them his law, he gave them his promises, he dwelt among them as their God. He is the father and creator of this nation. Do you also see the emphasis in verse 10 on God's oneness? The people have one father. There is one God who created them. And I think this takes us back to probably the most well-known biblical statement for any Jewish person known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear because of um, how this verse begins. Again on the screen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the foundation upon which the nation of Israel is built, the fact that there is one God. He stands alone, he is unique, and he's worthy of total love and total devotion. But as we saw last week, as Andrew's already reminded us, the people of Malachi's day are short-sighted. They have not kept faith with God. As we see at the end of verse 10, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now what is uh, Malachi talking about here? What is the covenant that they've broken? Well, it, it could be referring to the covenant made with Abraham, but I think it makes more sense uh, to see it as the covenant God made with Moses on Mount Sinai, because as we'll see from the verses that follow, it was the commands God gave to Moses that had been broken by the people. So they have treated their special covenant relationship with God as something profane, something common, something worthless, something that they could simply just abandon. But what exactly have they done to profane the covenant God made with them? What does it mean for them to break faith with one another? Well, let's read on in verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Let's just stop there for a moment. Up to this point, we don't know, do we, what it is they've done. But we're given vivid and serious language to describe the situation. Profaning the covenant. Breaking faith. A detestable thing has been committed. They have desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Now that last statement could be referring to the temple, which is often called a sanctuary. Could be referring to the people as a whole, the people whom God has loved, as we saw in in chapter 1. Or it could be referring more generally to God's holiness. Whichever it is, the people have committed an act that has dishonoured their holy God and has brought judgment on the nation. The question is, what is is the act that is so serious to warrant such language? Well, it's there at the end of verse 11. Their broken faith by marrying the daughter 
of a foreign God. The sin that has desecrated God's holiness and profaned his covenant is the sin of intermarriage with women from foreign nations. Now you might be wondering, why is that so serious in the eyes of the Lord? And you might also be wondering whether this verse is promoting some form of racism. Why cannot the people of Israel marry foreign women? Well, it's important to see that the issue for the Lord is not about race, but about religion. The language makes this clear. The men of Israel have been marrying the daughters of foreign gods. This is all about religious identity. The identity of these women is is wrapped up in the fact that they worship these gods. That's where their loyalty lies, not with the one god, but with the many gods, the other gods. Now, in the ancient Near East, this would probably have meant personal idols kept at home, household gods that were fed and worshipped and bowed down to. And so do you see, this is not about race. In fact, in Israel's history, there were many non-Jewish women who were included in the people of God because they loved the Lord. People like Ruth and Rahab and Abigail. No, this is not about race. This is about the people of Israel maintaining faithful love for their faithful Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. That is the core of the issue. The men of Israel were happy to join themselves to foreign women who were faithful to their gods. They were willing to risk abandoning their faith in the one true God for idols that cannot save. And if you know the story of Israel at all, then you'll know that if they walk, and as they walk along this path, They're walking the same path that King Solomon walked. The king of Israel, whose heart was led astray by the idolatry of his wives. A king who was responsible for bringing about the split of the nation, which eventually led to the exile under God's judgment. And yet the people are so short-sighted that they are blindly walking along the same path. And if they carry on in this unrepentant sin, then verse 12 will be the result. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Do you see the man who sins in this way is treated as an outsider. He's cut off from the nation of Israel because he's shown by his actions that his loyalties are divided And even though he might try and cover it up with shows of religion, do you see offering sacrifices at the temple, God will not be fooled. The big principle that God is urging his people to obey is this. They must be faithful to the God who has been faithful to them. They must love him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. Now, of course, we're listening to these words around two and a half thousand years after they were written. And crucially for us, if we're Christian, we're listening as those who are under the new covenant instituted by Jesus. The Lord Jesus was wholly faithful to the Lord in life and in death. He rose again to create a new people for himself, a people from every nation who would be devoted to the Lord 
But we also see the same principle carried through into the New Testament. If we are one of the people whom God has called to belong to Jesus, then we too are commanded to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. We too are commanded to be loyal to Jesus who has bought us and loved us. And that means being wary of anything that might steal our hearts away from the Lord. But I think there is a particular challenge here as we think through marriage. Because we learn here that it's far better to remain single and devoted to the Lord rather than marrying someone who is not wholly devoted to the Lord. Or to put it another way, loyalty to Jesus is more important than marriage. Now, there are people here in our church family who've decided to remain single rather than pursuing marriage with someone who does not love Jesus. People who've turned down the offer of a relationship, people who've guarded their hearts in this way because they know that the primary goal in life is not marriage, but faithfulness to the Lord to the end. And I want to urge you, if you are a Christian, if you have a decision ahead of you when it comes to a marriage partner, to not enter into marriage with someone who does not follow the same Lord that you do. Marriage to a non-believer might be wonderful in many ways, but it will also be extremely hard in the thing that matters most. It will be harder to maintain loyalty to the Lord, and it will be easier to let your heart drift from the Lord Jesus. That is why Paul says to Christian people in 1 Corinthians 7, a chapter that I think would be helpful to reflect on during the week if you want to do some more reading. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that when we marry, it should be to someone who belongs to the Lord. Now, I know that there are Christian people here this morning who are already married to those who don't know Jesus, either because you became a Christian when you were married, or because your spouse is no longer a believer, or because you made a decision to marry a non-believer. And I want to say, if you find yourself in any of those places, please know that the Bible speaks into your situation. In places like 1 Corinthians 7, Paul urges you to stay married and to love your spouse. 1 Peter 3 urges wives to win over their husbands with a quiet and gentle spirit. We can live a faithful life for Jesus in those situations. But if you haven't yet entered into marriage, and if you do have a decision somewhere down the line, the Bible urges you to guard your heart and to marry someone who shares the same loyalty to the Lord that you do, to keep faith in the God who has kept faith with you. That's the first thing we learn from these verses. Be faithful to God. Be loyal to him. The second is related to that. Be faithful in marriage. Now again, I want to acknowledge that there'll be some hard things to hear in these verses. And depending on who we are and what we've lived through, we'll need to hear these words in different ways. Some of us will need to hear Malachi's warnings quite strongly. We'll need to repent. Others will need to hear tender words of comfort from our faithful, loving God. And I've been praying that God, by his spirit, would apply these words in ways that we need to hear them. But the big point is summed up in this command, be faithful in marriage. Now, Malachi, so far, we've seen that the people of Judah have not abandoned God completely, or at least it seems that way from the outside, doesn't it? I wonder if you remember last week, there's loads of activity going on in the temple. Plenty of things, plenty of sacrifices being made, but it's insincere. 
And in verse 13, the people carry on their performance. Have a look at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Now the question we might have from verse 13 is, is this genuine? Are these real tears or crocodile tears? You know, is this genuine repentance or is it over-the-top emotion? Well, the commentators go both ways on that, but I think it's more likely to be a sign of over-the-top emotion. The way it's introduced in verse 13 sounds like a negative thing. Another thing you do, on top of what I've already said, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. Now, this might even be a way that pagan uh, worship practices have infiltrated um, worship in Israel. It was a mark of pagan idolatry to weep and wail and try and gain the attention of your gods. You could think about uh, the worshippers of Baal in 1 Kings who are crying out to their god to hear them. At its core was this idea that a worshipper could offer something to God in order to get something in return, whether that's emotion, shows of religion. But the Lord Almighty is not like that. He's the father of the nation, the God who created them, the God who loves them. He's not entered into a transactional relationship with his people. He's entered into a covenant relationship with them. He calls them to loyal love, not empty worship. And so he doesn't look in pleasure on the outward show of religion offered by half-hearted people. But verse 14, the people ask, why? Why does the Lord not accept the offerings from our hands? Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we uh, introduced this pattern that we see in the book of Malachi. A statement is made, either a statement that God makes or a statement that Malachi gives. And then that statement is disputed or questioned by the people. And then the answer is given. We see that pattern again and again in the book of Malachi. And here it is again. Why? Why does the Lord not accept our offerings? And here's the answer in verse 14, because you have been unfaithful in your marriages. Have a look at verse 14. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. That's the answer that God gives to their question of why he's not accepting offerings from their hands. He uses the language of breaking faith again, and here it refers to the breaking of vows made in marriage. Now, it's important to see the connection between what we've already seen so far in these verses and then uh, this verse in verse 14. There does seem to be a, a collection of interconnected sins in these verses. The men of Israel are marrying the daughters of foreign wives in verse 11. And here we read that they're divorcing the wives of their youth. Surely there's some connection between the two. Some are divorcing their wives in order to marry foreign wives. Now, this probably wasn't true in every case, but we can imagine it being true in some of the cases in Israel. And the question I want to grapple with this morning with you is, why is breaking faith in marriage so significant in the eyes of the Lord? Why is breaking faith in marriage Serious enough to warrant this warning? Well, let me draw out four reasons that um, we're given in these verses. Why is this a serious matter 
to the Lord? Well, firstly, because God is the witness in every marriage covenant. God is the witness in every marriage covenant. We see this in verse 14. Marriage is referred to not as a contract, but as a covenant commitment. And there's a huge difference between the two. Just think about a contract. A contract is short-term, comes to an end. Some of us have a house contract for a mortgage. We can change the terms. We can end the contract. We can form a new one. We have a contract with the builders who are starting work on our site. And there's a starting point. There's an end point, God willing. Contracts are short-term, easily started, easily ended. Covenants, on the other hand, are serious, personal lifelong commitments. God makes a covenant with his people and it's not torn up when things get hard. He is faithful to his promises. And marriage, God says, is a covenant between a man and a woman and God is the witness to that covenant. He's witness in the sense that he's there when that marriage is formed, but he's also witness because he holds those two people account to the promises that they've made to one another. God has designed marriage to reflect his covenant relationship, his covenant commitment to his people. It's a wonderful picture of the love that God has displayed in the gospel of Jesus, and therefore it's designed to be a lifelong, committed, loving union. As the Church of England's marriage ceremony has it, words on the screen, no one should enter into marriage lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. God stands as witness to every marriage covenant, and he desires that faithfulness in marriage reflects his faithfulness to his people. This is the first reason why breaking faith in marriage is so serious in God's sight. The second reason is in verse 15, because God has brought the married couple together. Have a look at verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. Now, as we move into verse 15 and 16, it's worth saying that translating these verses is quite challenging. And so if you're reading a different version of the Bible, you might notice some differences between the two. But whichever translation we go with, I think the meaning of verse 15 is clear. God has brought a married couple together. In the same marriage ceremony, following the giving and receiving of rings, the church minister says these sobering words, those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Not a word we use much in our language anymore. Um, modern languages, let, let no one separate. God has joined them together. He has made them one. We might think back to Genesis 2, when God brings a married couple together as one flesh. Marriage has been instituted and created by God. And every marriage is God joining a man and woman together in this new family covenant. We're also given another purpose of marriage in verse 15, and another reason why breaking faith in marriage is so serious. Because God is seeking godly offspring. Have a look again at verse 15. Why one? Why has God brought this married couple together? because he was seeking godly offspring. Do you see the question that Malachi is asking? Why marriage? Why this new one flesh union? Because God was seeking godly offspring. Now this is not the only reason why God created marriage, but it's a significant reason. God wants his world filled with his image bearers, 
He wants his world filled with people who love his name and honor his name. He's seeking godly offspring, children who are brought up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. This is why it's so incredibly painful when a married couple finds it hard to conceive or when they lose children before they're born. One friend of mine who spent years trying for children with his wife described it as a deep grief that they carried around with them every day. It's a heartbreaking grief, isn't it? Because we know the goodness of children. We know the goodness of seeking to bring children up to know the Lord. And this is another reason why we heard the warning of verses 10 to 13. Do you remember, if the people of Israel are marrying the daughters of foreign gods, then inevitably there will be a divided approach to parenting, won't there? What will the children do on a Sunday? Will they go to the church with their father or will they go to the pagan temple with their mother? What prayers will be said at the dinner table? What ambitions will they have for their children? God is seeking godly offspring. Now again, I know this is hard for some of us to hear and I want to say very clearly that God can and does work through single Christian parents and he can and does work in families where only one parent is a believer. God is gracious, abundantly gracious and he works out his purposes in countless ways in hard circumstances. But verse 15 gives us one other reason why loyalty to the Lord in marriage is so important. It's for the sake of the children in that marriage because God is seeking godly offspring. And the fourth reason why unfaithfulness in marriage is serious in God's sight is in verse 16. Because divorce is an act of violence against one's spouse. Now I think the ESV translation is probably more helpful on this verse. Let me put that up on the screen. The question of translation here revolves around the person who is doing the hating. Is it the Lord, as we have in our translation, or is it, is it the husband? I think it's better to see it as the husband, and this is how uh, the new NIV uh, translates it as well, and, and the ESV translation on the screen. Let's read it uh, from the translation on the screen. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now in Western society, divorce is often seen as a kind, amicable act. The relationship has run its course. Love in the marriage has waned. Conflict in the marriage perhaps has increased over time. And so the most loving thing to do is to seek a divorce. Now we don't have time this morning to go into all the Bible passages um, that refer to marriage and divorce, but there are reasons given in the Bible, I think, for why divorce might be permitted in some circumstances and might even be the most loving thing to do. For example, in cases of adultery or abandonment or serious abuse, in these cases divorce may be the right path forward if reconciliation is not possible. And yet we need to be clear that in the vast majority of cases, God would warn us against divorce and would encourage us towards lifelong faithfulness in the covenant of marriage. If a husband divorces his wife without cause, if the divorce is not for one of the reasons given for why divorce is permitted, then that person is not acting out of love for his spouse, says the Lord. Rather, he's covering his garment with violence. Now, what what does that mean? Let's think about this picture a little bit more carefully. The picture here, I think, is of a a blood-stained garment. Imagine if a a man walked around with blood on his clothes. You'd know that a, a, a violent act had been committed. It would be publicly obvious, wouldn't it? 
And God is saying that the same is true in marriage. Marriage is a public, loving union. And so to break faith in marriage is a public, obvious sin against your spouse. It is to treat them with violence and hatred. Now, some of us know from divorces ourselves or divorces among our family and friends, it's something that brings an immense amount of damage and pain and destruction in its wake. It's always incredibly painful. Do you see that faithfulness in marriage is something that God loves and something that God values very highly? For these four reasons. He's the witness in every marriage covenant. He brings a man and woman together in marriage. He's seeking godly offspring. And divorcing a spouse without cause is to commit a violent act against them. This is why God warns his people so strongly in Malachi's day about this particular sin. He is the faithful God who wants a faithful people, and in particular people who are faithful in their marriages. And all of this is driving at the commands given in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And then verse 16, which seems to sort of generalize it a bit more. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. This is what the passage has been driving at all the way through. And so I want to conclude by asking, how can we live out this command? How can we guard ourselves in our spirits and pursue faithfulness to God? Well, the first way we can guard ourselves is to reflect on the faithfulness that God has shown to us. That's the first way, to reflect on the faithfulness that God has shown to us. This has got to be the starting point. Isn't this where Malachi began this section? Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Isn't this where he began the whole book in chapter 1, verse 2? I have loved you, says the Lord. Malachi is focusing the minds of the people on the covenant faithfulness of God. That's the thing that is going to work its way out among the people if they were to believe it. It's because of his love and faithfulness that the people should be living loving, faithful lives. But one of the sadnesses of this last book of the Old Testament is that the heart of God's people remains the same as it always has throughout the Bible story. Don't you find that a sad state of affairs by the end of the Old Testament? They're half-hearted, they're idolatrous, they're disloyal. They may have moved from place to place. Their history might have spanned hundreds of years, but their hearts have stubbornly remained the same. And we need to see that this is the human heart. This is the human heart that we all share. Like a broken shopping trolley that always veers to one side. Our hearts naturally turn away from the one true God. We naturally are unfaithful to him but God remains faithful. And we know that in a much richer way than the original hearers of Malachi because we have seen the faithfulness of God in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know how God has been faithful to unfaithful people. It's by establishing a new and better covenant. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8 on the screen where the writer compares the covenant of Moses with the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus He says this, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 
But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Do you see, God is not surprised by the unfaithfulness of his people. He knew that he would need to establish a new covenant with those he would call his own. A covenant where he would forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. A covenant where he would put his laws in our minds, write them on our hearts. A covenant established by the one truly faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. You might be here this morning and the words of Malachi have made you deeply aware of how unfaithful you've been to God. And if so, the good news of Jesus is that he invites you into a covenant relationship with his Father where you can know forgiveness and where you can experience transformation by the Spirit of God. God has been faithful to unfaithful people. And if we're someone who has come to trust in the death of Jesus, and if we know and enjoy the faithful love of God today, then let me offer you two further reflections to take into this week. Firstly, to reflect on your own faithfulness to God. We as human beings are loyal and faithful to all sorts of things in our world, aren't we? Loyal to our favorite sports team, loyal to our jobs, loyal to a particular political party maybe. And that loyalty and faithfulness shows itself in all sorts of ways. It affects the decisions we make, it affects the way we live, it affects how we spend our money, how we use our time. And the question we're confronted with in Malachi is could people see our loyalty to the Lord? Could people see it in the way we live our lives, the way we use our time, the way we relate to others? Does faithfulness to God permeate every aspect of our lives? Does it reach into our private lives? Does it affect our public lives? The people in Jerusalem were failing to guard themselves in their spirits. They were failing to guard their love for God. And so I want to ask you, what are the shaping influences in your own life that you need to be aware of that might be stealing your heart from the living Lord? How can we cultivate deeper love for the Lord who has loved us? And finally, these verses help us, if we're married, to reflect on our faithfulness in marriage. No one wakes up one day and decides to be unfaithful to their husband or wife. It's not normally a quick decision people make to end their marriages and break faith. It's normally a slow drift that takes place within a marriage. Small decisions, small grievances, small acts of unfaithfulness that can grow and grow until the marriage feels beyond repair. And if you can see that path in your own marriage, then please hear Malachi's warning. Guard yourselves, guard your marriages, talk to others, get help.
Faithfulness is not easy because every marriage will be more like a roller coaster than a smooth train track. But every marriage that lasts is built on the foundation, this foundation of faithfulness to the promises that we've made. Elizabeth Elliot, a well-known Christian author and speaker, uh, writes this. A bridegroom chooses to marry a woman because he loves her. Now he must choose to love her because he married her. The daily choice to be faithful to the promises we've made in our marriages so that our marriages might display God's faithfulness to the world. Dear brothers and sisters, we have a faithful God a God who is faithful to his promises to us, a God whose word will never fail, will we live lives that reflect his faithfulness? Let me lead us in prayer as we come to an end. Let's pray. I'll just give you a moment to pray on your own about the things that might have challenged you before I lead us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being faithful to unfaithful people and bringing us into a covenant relationship with you through Jesus. Thank you for your precious promises and your unfailing love. Father, please help us to hear and respond to these words of Malachi in the way that you want us to, whether that's with repentance, or with renewed thankfulness for your grace, or with a fresh commitment to be faithful to you. Please help us to love you with all our heart, soul, and strength. And if we're married, help us to be faithful to our spouse, that the world might know your great faithfulness to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.